This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time and having a good laugh while we do it. <laughs> yes, thankfully, we're having, we're having good laughs. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about using inner dialogue to guide a conversation. But speaking of conversation... I, I'm sure lots of people who are listening are using software that maybe they've never used before to communicate with people on a regular basis. Things like Zoom and Microsoft uh, Team and Cisco Web Meeting or WebEx or whatever it's called. And yesterday, I had the opportunity to use all three of those in the same day on three different meetings as a part of six Back to back to back to back to back to back to back meetings. And it's it's just astonishing how much of this stuff is being done now and how normal it's becoming. There was one situation we were getting a sales presentation from a young lady, very well spoken, really doing a great job, and then all of a sudden her dog started barking. <laughs> and it was that's, hysterical. That's- Sounds like us. It does. It does sound like us. And and you guys don't hear the number of times when Taylor's dog starts barking because we normally cut it out. Every so often you'll hear the growl, but normally we get the the barking out. And she's she, and we get all the me going, be quiet, stop. <laughs> yes, we sh- although we should do a montage of that. That would be kind of fun. But the, the young lady, she was she did it so well. She said, "I am so sorry. These are crazy times." And I was just thinking how apt that was and the number of people that are working from home you know we have been you and i have been doing this we've been communicating this way for years and we've been working from home for years but lots of people for lots of people this is a a completely new thing and i've seen lots of online videos how to make yourself look good in a zoom meeting how to get the lighting right for for zoom how to you know where to position your camera where to do all this stuff and it's it's just fascinating how there's this little cottage industry that's grown up to support this new style of communication in only a few weeks and i i just find that fascinating are you doing any of this other than with for the podcast taylor no i am actually doing less like Because the crazier things get, or I don't know if it's that things are necessarily crazier, but I find that the mental stress it puts on me, just the, just, it's so, so much, so big that I find myself trying to get further and further and further away because it's too much. And the more I do in terms of having to show up on camera or having to even write, like I'm so far behind in writing posts and, you know, newsletters or whatever, it's because it's so mentally taxing and, and like almost as a survival mechanism, I'm trying to escape it. And I've had invitations to do, you know, on camera stuff. And I'm just like, no, I'm screaming inside. Like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. This is torture. <laughs> Give me as far away from this as possible. I'm going to play with chickens. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and next week, you can rest assured that our chit chat will involve chickens <laughs> or, gar- or gardens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so let's get to it. This week, we're talking about using inner dialogue to guide the conversation. So, Taylor, do you want to guide us through this conversation? I'll do my bestest. My notes on this are a little bit rough, so it might get choppy. But if anything bad happens, if you get lost, just snap your fingers and the dog will start barking and we'll blame it on the dog. There you go. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So we have had conversations before on this show about purpose. And specifically, I'm thinking of show 211. I went and looked it up, which was every scene needs a purpose. And the reason why I'm referring back to that is because I recently encountered some material that made me realize that everything we spoke of about every scene needing a purpose is also true of questions being asked one character to the other in dialogue. So as a base, it's been a while. So as a basic foundation for the principles that we lay down in Every Scene Needs a Purpose, I'm going to crib from my show notes from that episode as a refresher so that we can use that as sort of a baseline springboard for this discussion as we take it in a new direction. So from my show notes from that episode, 211, where I was talking about Every Scene Needs a Purpose, we were talking about how we run into a character characterization slash plot flow issue where there'll be a character on their way somewhere doing something for some purpose and that we, as the reader, we don't really necessarily know what they're doing. We just know we're along for the ride, watching it take place. In other words, we're not actually so much in their head experiencing their thoughts. We're seeing it through their eyes and their body and going through the motions. So in these types of situations, the author is going to do just like this fantastic job of setting out all the steps of getting from A to Z, and we get really great description, and all the detail is just right. Boxes are all ticked, except that it's only after they've laid out that entire framework, it's only after the character gets to wherever they were going that were actually let inside their head. And at that point, after they've already done all these things, we've seen all these things, we get to experience their thoughts, and then the character just kind of sits there and starts analyzing what to do next, what their next steps are or whatever, and what it was that brought them there. I mean, it's going to vary. No two scenarios are the same. It's kind of the gist of what happens. And the problem with that setup is that that's not how real life works. So in real life, most people, at the very least, they begin thinking through their options on the way to wherever it is they're going. But the more likely scenario is that it's going to have been thinking through the options that that is the thing that compels them to wherever it is they're going in the first place. So let's say they're going to a bus station, right? They would It would be the fact that they had thought through all the options first that per- compels them to go to the bus station instead of renting a car, asking a friend for a ride, flying, whatever. So that means by the time they get to the bus station, 
even if they were, you know, didn't even have the thought process to think super logically or whatever, we already know what they went there for. They don't get to the bus station and go, oh, now I'm at the bus station. Let me think about all the places I can get to now that I'm here. It would be more a case of, I need to get to Indianapolis. What's the easiest way for me to get there without drawing attention to myself? I could do this. I could do this. No, I'm going to take a bus. And then we go through all the steps, right? So that's how our our logic and our emotion, like even if we're not super logical about our thinking, we're still thinking and we're still processing thought through emotion. And then we react on that thought and emotion. And that is cause and effect. And you'll notice we hammer that idea of cause and effect so often on the show, whether it's through thought, action, speech, um, through situations like this, because that is that replicates real life. That's how our brains process information. And when we do it backwards, then it creates a real interruption to the to the enjoyment of the story because we're having we get the information, then we got to stop and we've got to figure out what that information means and then put meaning to it and then keep going. Right. So essentially, in real life, we think or we feel first, then we react. And when we violate that on the page, we end up with, and this is in terms of um, character in motion, scenes, whatever, we end up with characters who come across as impulsive or not very smart. In some cases, it can turn likable characters into unlikable ones. Um, decisions that are meant to be logical and have meaning seem to be happenstance. Uh, scenes that are going to feel unsatisfying. Unsatisfying. There's all sorts of stuff that happens when we when we violate that cause and effect thing, right? So in 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 this case with dialogue, all of that holds true. It's the same. We need cause and effect, and that has to do with where characters are asking questions of each other. Specifically, is what I'm focusing on in this in this episode. So where you get those characters um, interacting with each other, asking questions of each other, is when there's a, a knowledge imbalance or where one character's interviewing other characters to try and find out what they know. Um, it's usually a quest for information. Like, we don't just ask questions out of nowhere. Even in real life, even the most vapid, vapid questions come from some mental or um, emotional, even if it's subconscious, impetus. And and so there's got to be, a, there's a reason behind these questions, right? And so in fiction, there also has to be a reason behind the questions. But unlike real life, where you can get away with asking nonsense questions to fill, to fill silence or just get somebody talking or whatever, you can't get away with that on the page. On the page, there has to actually be a real reason for asking questions. Now, generally, in fiction, dialogue, or at least good dialogue, it's going to serve three simultaneous purposes. One, it's going to show or establish character. Two, it's going to inform the reader, tell them something that they didn't already know. And three, it's going to move the plot forward. So it's a trifecta. It's a tripod, right? And it requires balance. So just like in real life with a real life tripod, if one of those two, one or two of those legs are longer or more emphasized than the others, it's going to become unwieldy. And if one or two of those legs are missing altogether, it's going to become useless, right? It's the same thing with questions in dialogue. They have to fill all three of those purposes for them to feel whole and 
purposeful and authentic. And they fought and and to do that, it follows a cause and effect pattern, right? So maintaining this balance is not easy. And being able to do it well, that's craft, pure and simple. Practice, craft, working at it. But one of the most difficult places to to maintain that balance is during an interrogation or questioning session, or where one of the question one of the characters has um, just has something that they need to know and approaches another character, whether casually or formally or what have you, for the specific purpose of eliciting information. I mean, the whole reason that plot is calling for this conversation is to convey information or because we need to eliminate that person as a suspect. But it involves this interaction, this questioning. And Sometimes you get these situations where it almost seems like the character themselves who's doing the asking, they don't even know what kind of information they're trying to get. They're, they're fishing, right? So how do you get these, the questions, if, if the character themselves doesn't even know what they're trying to ask, how do you manage to hit this trifecta of character, information, moving the plot forward, and what have you? It's, it's complicated. And you cannot just ask throwaway questions for the sake of getting it over with. So this is on my mind right now because I recently hit a scene where the character, and we'll just call him Pat, set out to interview several people. But the questions that Pat is asking, they're very basic and bland. They're not, they're boring questions. They are not questions that move the plot forward. It's more like, I need this person to show me X, so I'm going to ask this, right? Real, um, just basic. It does, they're, not, they're not showing character. They're barely informing the reader, but they are maybe sort of moving the plot forward. They're also questions that might not necessarily be asked of the right person. So the plot needs Pat to meet with these different people because it's like a potential suspect list. But based on the questions Pat's asking them, there's no reason why he asked to ask them specifically. He doesn't have to ask them. He doesn't have to be there having that conversation with them, not based on the questions he's asking them. So why is he there? Why is he having this conversation with them? A lot of these questions could be answered by speaking to just one person. So in a very real way, he's asking questions of each person just so that he can say he had this conversation? I don't know. There's nothing he's asking that only that person could answer. And that creates a problem because it causes each one of these scenes to feel very much like filler. And as a reader, as you read this, you begin to question what the whole point of it even is. Like, why is he asking that person that question? He could have asked so-and-so two pages ago. Did Why did he save it for that person, right? So in that vein, just as every, every scene has to serve a purpose, every question has to serve a purpose beyond just informing the reader, beyond just the plot requirements. So in this scenario, for Pat to ask each character the question he's asking, there has to be a reason for him to ask 
that person. Now, here's the thing. It is perfectly fine that these are bland, boring, basic questions. It's even fine if Pat is asking questions that he already knows the answer to. If, and here's the if that all of this hangs on, if the reason for him asking them is clear. And to do that, you have to be inside Pat's head. And it's the same issue that we ran into with the scene episode where we talk about how the character does all of these things and we see it through their eyes and it's described. And then they finally sit down and start thinking. And the problem we have with these types of dialogue, running dialogue things where, you know, what about this? What about that? Oh, I looked over there. He pointed over here. It made me think of this is we don't know what the character's thinking. So if we don't know what the character's thinking, these questions have no meaning. They're just there. And so they start to feel like filler. So as you, the author, are, are writing these things out, writing these questions out, specifically, you need to be asking yourself, why is he asking that character that question? What is he really trying to learn here? It doesn't matter if the question itself is bland and boring. Maybe what he's really trying to get is the character's reaction to that bland and boring question. So the question itself is secondary. Yes, it needs to drive the plot forward, but the plot can be driven forward in many different ways. Yes, it needs to inform the reader, but it can in we can inform the reader in many different ways. Maybe the question is not actually the issue here, we're informing them based on what the other, how the other character is responding to that question. And the question itself, um, it needs to build character or, or establish character, but how we establish that character is also, there's a lot of room for how that's done. So we don't have to get trapped in focusing on asking exactly the right words for the question. What we need to focus on is why our character is asking that question of that person. And when we let our readers into the mindset of our character who's asking the question, we're essentially building a framework around that question so that by the time the question is asked, we've already given it meaning because we understand what the character is thinking and what's led them and prompted them to ask that question. So in this particular scenario that got me thinking about all of this, um, it really just reads similar to how um, our episode 211 was describing it of, you know, it's a series of detail or description and direct questions without any real sense of why or what the character is doing, or in this case, why they're asking that question. And without that mechanism to understand the what or the why, or here, what Pat is after, why these specific things matter to him, it's impossible for the details that were being shown, for the words were being told or spoken, it's impossible for them to mean anything. And so the whole scene's just gonna feel wooden, it's gonna feel info dumpy, and that's at best. At worst, it's going to start to feel like the whole thing is filler and it could just be condensed in a couple paragraphs. So how do we fix it? I think you guys already kind of know the answer based on what I've already said here. And, you know, how do we, can we, is there a way, yes, obviously, to have Pat ask the exact same questions and have it feel completely real? Can we do that? Absolutely. 
And again, the way we do that, the way we resolve these issues of wooden scenes, stilted questions, direct whatever, or even what could be considered very basic, boring questions, even questions being asked of the wrong person when we could have asked somebody else two pages ago, and we don't even need to be talking to this character now, except that the plot requires it. All of that can be fixed by getting inside the character's head and creating cause and effect. Here's the cause, what the character is thinking. Here's what he wants to know. And we use that to give meaning to these questions beforehand. And when they arrive, it doesn't matter what the question is because we understand the purpose behind it and what the character is trying to get at. And again, the trifecta in that is we're going for character, we're going for revealing information to the reader, and we're trying to drive the plot forward. And so we've had discussions before on this show, um, and there have been questions like, how do you know when you're supposed to have inner dialogue? How do you know when an inner dialogue beat is missing? And I didn't know the answer. I didn't, I couldn't point to it and say, this is why. And there are probably many, many reasons where I still can't answer that yet. But I can tell you that if you have a question and there hasn't been a peak beforehand into the character's mind. I mean, it doesn't have to be before every single question all the time, but in some cases it does need to be that way. It's going to be situational. You're going to have to use your best judgment. But if you're getting question after question and you're not hearing the character go, well, that answer troubled me. But then I thought, well, what about this? And I thought, okay, maybe I can do X, Y, Z. So I said, blah, you're not getting any of that. You need those inner dialogue beats because that's what's giving you the framework. So to answer that long ago question of how do we know when to insert an inner care, you know, an inner dialogue beat or an emotional beat, this is how. Too many questions in a row without giving us insight into how the character is thinking to guide us into what those questions are supposed to mean. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. Uh, but first of all, I, I did go back and check. Episode two eleven is not yeah. is not the right episode. It's, I... epi it's episode two thirteen. Well, how did I get that so wrong? <laughs> I was just looking <laughs> off my notes. You uh, yes, the pressure shouldn't be put on you to always get the episode right because you're actually providing the material. So I go back in and check to make sure the episode is right. Well, thank you for that. So I, I'm still a little bit unsure about the whole idea. I, mean, you, I, I had a sense there for a minute that you were, you were, we were moving our way towards the Holy Grail, where you were saying, I didn't actually give you the answer to when we needed to put these beats in before, but now I kind of know the answer, and the answer is that when you have too many questions in a row without, you know, it, it didn't really answer the question. It, it, it provided a little bit of insight into what to look for. So is, is what you're saying that when we're reading through our, our own material, for example, say we've written a story with a character like Pat, for example, and we're reading through and we see these things, we see too many sequential questions without inner dialogue framing the questions, is, is that then the point where we go in and we say, okay, this is the third question in a row without 
without this framework being built. So I do it here because you know I you would, said you don't want to do it every time, but you really, in effect, you I mean, kind of can as well. You can't. It, it's it's so situational. Like it's going to depend on writing style. It's going to depend on genre. It's going to depend on so many things. But the point is, especially like some questions speak for themselves. Like some questions are very uh, articulate and fully express where the character is coming from with something. And maybe you don't need as much inner dialogue to create the framework for why that question is being asked or where the character is coming from, because the question itself does so much of the talking. But when you run into situations where the questions are bland or being at why, it's confusing why they're being specifically asked of that person, the, the further away you get from clarity, the more you need to have the character's inner dialogue, their understanding, their thought processes guiding those questions, guiding the conversation, creating a framework around those questions so we understand the purpose behind them. What is the character getting at? What is he really after in asking that question? When, when a character who should know, for example, um, that... Uh, a family has regular parties and has been to those parties before and knows more or less how big they were, when character already knows something like that from their history, and then they turn around and ask a character they're speaking with, how big are these parties? Um, there has to be a reason for them asking something they already know beyond just making it so the reader knows, right? Um, when they're asking someone, you know, how many people come to these parties, but that person doesn't actually attend the parties themselves and is just sort of maybe like a valet or whatever, why would you ask a valet how many people come to the parties when you're going to be talking to the party planner themselves? That type of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's a question for the party planner, not for the valet. So if you're going to be asking the valet a question about party size, then there has to be a reason. Uh, I knew I was going to be talking to Jane later about the parties, but I didn't know if I'd be able to trust her answer, so I decided to to speak to John first. Uh, I was going to throw it out here and see if their answers matched up. Like that is inner character dialogue mm -hmm. that preempts the question, so that even though you're asking question of the wrong person, it's pre-explained. You've, you've taken away the question for the reader, like, why are you asking that person that question? They, they weren't even there, you know? Um, so it's, if you're going to get a lot of those types of questions in order where you're just rattling off sort of a list, well, what about this? What about that? What about that? That's when it becomes critical that we understand we're inside the character's head, understanding the motivation behind asking each of these questions. But it's situational because not every story is going to be like that. Not every conversation in that story is going to be like that. And there are going to be conversations where the character is speaking to the only person who can answer those questions. Okay, let's use uh, the the first chapter, no, second chapter of the Reggie material that we worked on together a long time ago, where Reggie went to talk to Cassandra Pennington about art appraisals, right? Mm -hmm. She was the only character in, in that story that he could ask art appraisal questions too. So there was no need to get into his head about why he's asking her that question, but we could get into his head about things he didn't understand. And the reason we would do that is so that the reader, to guide the reader, like that, to, to inform the reader, 
to move the plot forward and to build character. So we're showing a Reggie doesn't know these things. We're informing the reader because they need to know these things and Reggie doesn't as well as Reggie. And we're moving the plot forward because we're eliminating things or adding to the story in ways that that control the framework moving forward. Oh, if it could be this, then we know we can move in direction A and B. But if it cannot be this, that eliminates this other possibility. So that conversation covers all three of those points without having to go really deep into his thinking on why he's asking those specific questions. Who else would he ask? Okay. All right. That makes sense. And the examples were, were super useful and hopefully super useful to people out there listening as well. So that is it for this week's show. We thank you guys very much for listening. And as always, we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. See you guys next Tuesday.